0: This is the Aim High Podcast, Kramer Kingswood's alumni podcast. With me today is Blake Rockwell, class of 1985. He is the founder of Special Spectators and does many other cool things. So Blake, I'll hand over to you. Please tell us a few more things about yourself.
1: Robert, thanks for having me on. It's great to be on. I don't know how many of your viewers or listeners have heard of Special Spectators, but We're a uh, volunteer run nonprofit organization. We create VIP, all access game day experiences for seriously ill kids and their families at sporting events across the country. Overwhelming majority of what we do is with college sports and within college sports, specifically college football. We've been doing this for 20 years since 2002. So we're 20 seasons celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. And um, what we create for kids who are going through a lot, medically speaking. Cancer, cystic fibrosis, waiting organ transplants, kids with major cardiac conditions, cystic fibrosis, any serious life-threatening illness, what we create for them and their families is kind of the ultimate Saturday experience. So that includes a tailgate party and ultimate hospitality area, G-rated, kid-friendly tailgate party, not like what you did when you were an undergrad. Yeah, that would not be appropriate, yeah. We feed them their We also welcome a number of special guests to our hospitality area, whether it's mascots, cheerleaders. We get a portion of the marching band to come and perform for the families, get them revved up for the game. Other student athletes, we get the kids into the locker room where they get to try on their favorite players' equipment. They meet the coaches and players. They're down on the field watching the guys warm up from the sidelines. Sometimes they serve as honorary captains for the game that they're attending. They get introduced to the crowd during a media timeout. Which is my favorite moment, still gives me goosebumps after 20 years. So imagine over 100,000 fans giving these kids, you know, the loudest standing ovation of the game. It's just a really powerful moment. And uh, by the way, we were in six of the 10 largest college football stadiums last fall. So Alabama, Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, Florida, Texas, all
0: the biggies we partner with. Yeah, I can imagine. That is such an amazing experience for the kids. Yeah, definitely. So how did this start? What was the inspiration behind it all? One of my older brothers was
1: born with a congenital heart defect, passed away at the age of 10 and a half during his second open heart surgery. And I grew up mostly in Grand Rapids. I also grew up in in Midland, but first part of my life was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where my entire family lived and, and grew up also. And we would make... The family would make trips to Chicago, to Children's Memorial Hospital there. And out of college, I moved to Chicago and became a volunteer at the exact same children's hospital and met incredible families, inspiring kids. To my surprise, a lot of them had never been to any type of game in their life. They were huge sports fans, but really the only access they had to sports was what they watched on television or through video games. And I thought, that's crazy. We can definitely take kids to games and not just take them to games, but as I described to you, make them a part of the game. And so that's what we do. And and in 20 years, we've hosted over 10,000 patients, siblings, and parents in all at just under 500 games. we'll probably go over that 500 game threshold for the 2022 season.
0: So after with all experiences, these game days, What do the kids tell you? What'd they tell you afterwards about how they feel? Yeah, it really varies. We think that we put together a day that they will
1: always remember. They will always cherish. And we have had kids, a handful of kids who have passed away three, four weeks after going to a game and families will say to us, that was our child's last great day. But I think what is really important is to listen because each individual child and their family and what they're going through is unique to them. Now, obviously there are a lot of similarities, but it's unique to them. And so what's important for us and our crew of over 200 volunteers across the country is to really listen. As you can imagine, having a child dealing with a life-threatening illness can be a huge mission for the family. It can create a lot of tension in a family. It's not uncommon for mom and dad to split up as a result of all of this pressure and tension and everything that's going on in the life, in their lives. Sometimes a child's dad, maybe not, is not in the picture. So really being present to that is incredibly important because out of all of the incredible memories and elements that we might create on game day, what might be most memorable to that child is that our volunteer played catch with them at our tailgate or down on the field or something like that. So even though we think all this really cool stuff of going to the locker room and meeting the coaches and players and getting introduced to a 100,000 fans is something that they will be incredibly moving and something they'll cherish, something as simple as playing catch with a volunteer is what they really remember. So it can really vary from case to case. The funniest story, I think, and I often, I like, when I go to an event, I like asking kids, what was your favorite part of the day? And I've had funny replies. I've never been up close to one of those orange pylons in the end zone. I'm never going to forget
0: that. Like, okay, that's awesome. So you just never know what a kid's going to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, So how do you decide or how do you pick who to bring to the game day? So we are
1: not a wish granting organization. Now we have families who reach out to us and say, this is our story, We would our child is a huge, whatever, Oklahoma fan or whatever school. We would love to go to a game and we will grant that. We will reach out to them and make that connection. But a majority of what we do is collaborating with children's hospitals all over the country in these cities where the colleges are located or a children's hospital that is closest to that college town. And we collaborate with the hospital. We tell them, hey, this is what we're looking for. We're looking for kids who are really going through a lot, medically speaking, who have been going through it for a long time, or maybe they're just in a really rough patch right now, and they need their tanks refilled. They need to be re-energized. They need to have their spirits lifted. We obviously want kids who are going to really appreciate going to a game. And by that, I mean, we don't want a child wearing green and white who's going to the Michigan game. So that's kind of what we share with the hospitals that we partner with. And then collectively, we select the families and we surprise them with an invitation to spend game day with us. And that's pretty much how it works. How's the surprise go? It's just we like to do it. A couple of weeks before game day, we don't want to do it too far in advance because unfortunately things might happen. If we do it months in advance, there's a good chance that something's going to happen to a child and then you have to break the bad news to them that they can't go. So we just send them that invitation to come join us and then we really just take it from there. Families don't have to do anything other than wake up in the morning get the kids dressed hair brushed teeth brushed get them in the car and just drive to the stadium and once they're there we take it from there so we arrange parking we lay out the full itinerary we share that with them with some of our partners thanks to some of our partners what we do prior to the game is send them a gift box a little care package they get some gifts at the game they get maybe some gifts after the game And our volunteers are there on game day, really kind of ushering them through all of the different game day elements that we have planned. And it is a long day. We have families arrive three, three and a half hours before kickoff. And then the length of the game might be another three, three and a half hours. And then in some cases, we have something planned post game with the coaches. And they've, especially in the case when the team wins, we don't really get them in the locker room when it's, uh, you know, when they've lost a game but when a team wins get them in there and they get to hang out with the players and get as many autographs as they want sometimes coaches give the kids game balls it's all of
0: that kind of fun stuff that is such a exclusive experience like i will yeah what happens in the locker room right after they win the game <laughs> yeah yeah it's really
1: cool and the guys are awesome you know there's so many people that go into making this happen i mean like i said we have 200 volunteers across the country but then There are all of our collegiate partners and all of the people in the athletic department who have some type of role in making this happen. Our hospital partners, our other partners like General Mills and Riddell and Learfield and UPS and just all of the corporate partners that we have had who really make this one of the greatest days in these kids' lives and have that impact on them. And it's an overused phrase, but any of those links break and the chain breaks and it would not be possible without all of those people behind the scenes making it happen
0: how did you go about getting the schools on board like who was the first school originally when i had the idea 20 years
1: ago i reached out to the ncaa here's a little funny kind of story so after cranbrook i went to albion college and the head of the ncaa at that time was cedric dempsey who was also an albion grad The number two man at the NCAA was also an LVN grad. And so I wrote them and I said, hey, listen, I have this idea and I I laid it out in a letter and I gave them examples of what I pictured at specific schools. And they got back to me and they said that we love the idea, but this isn't something that we can really make our member institutions do. This isn't a requirement that we can force on our member institutions. So they suggested that I reach out to every conference commissioner. And so I did that and I essentially got the same reply back. So at that time there were 117 FBS programs. Now they're like 130. And I just wrote to all 117 and said, listen, this is an idea that I have. This is something I wanna to put together. I wanna to partner with you in doing this. And I thought, wow, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to have 117 in the first year. It's going to be so cool. And I had two that said yes. And they were Central Florida and Arizona were the first two. And, um, Then I think in year two, we built it up to nine schools, and then we really started getting some traction, getting some momentum. There was definitely some comfort in numbers, schools hearing what other schools were doing, getting feedback from them. And then we just, the trajectory just kept going up and up. And so now we're a little over 40. And we feel like in 2022, after a couple of years of the pandemic and seemingly the worst being behind us we're really ready to roll this fall not that we didn't do anything in 2020 or 2021 we did but really going at it full steam ahead we're really excited for the upcoming season
0: that's awesome it is awesome just to hear the growth over the years yeah so then i'm i'm wondering what's the impact on the players and the coaches
1: the coaches obviously they're all grown men with families of their own so they they know what it means as a family They can only imagine what it must be like for a family to go through what all these families are going through. And then what it means as a family to get out together away from the hospital, away from anything medically related and really have some normalcy return to your lives. That is just that alone means the world to all these families. So coaches can really relate to that as being husbands and fathers themselves. For the players, obviously they're younger. We're talking mostly kids from 18 to 22. And maybe some of them have had some sort of medical experience within their family, whether it be a mom or dad or a sibling or cousin or what have you, guys like that can relate to that. Some of them, it's really an eye-opening experience to them. These are guys who are incredible athletes. They are put up on a pedestal. Maybe they've had a pretty serious injury at some point in their career and to watch these kids and to be inspired by them, I think that's a pretty cool place to be where you see a small child who is clearly going through a lot medically with a big, huge college football player. And each is being inspired by the other, but they don't realize that they're inspiring the other. They just know that, hey, the other is inspiring me. And that's a really, really, powerful thing to witness when the two are inspiring each other and they don't even know it. And so we, we've had some players, one that comes to mentioned, and it's not like I'm super close to him. I don't want to seem like I'm name dropping or anything like that. But Baker Mayfield, who Heisman Trophy winner at Oklahoma, number one draft pick of the Cleveland Browns. Once he became a professional football player, an NFL football player, he was doing some things in the state of Ohio, specifically with, I think it was with Special Olympics. He put out on apparel line and all the proceeds were to go to special olympics i believe is special olympics of ohio and he in some of the interviews that i read he specifically pointed out his experience with special spectators while he was at oklahoma and that was great to, to see to have that type of impact on someone like baker mayfield and and he became quite close with A young woman who attended one of our game day experiences at Oklahoma, and unfortunately this incredible young lady passed away less than three months after going to a game. And it was uh, obviously very heartbreaking to learn of her passing, and it was obviously incredibly heartbreaking for her family. And Baker ended up speaking at this young lady's funeral. And this all happened. I think she died a couple of days before he was awarded the Heisman Trophy. And her funeral was a couple of days after the Heisman Trophy ceremony, and and he was there
0: speaking at her funeral. For people who want to support Special Spectators, what's the best way to do that?
1: Well, we have so many ways you can support Special
0: Spectators.
1: Firstly, you can go onto our website. You can make a donation if you'd like to do that. You can reach out to me, info, at specialspectators.com dot org That's special spectators with an s at the end specialspectators.org. if you'd like to get involved either in volunteering or maybe you would like to get your company involved in special spectators there are a number of ways that someone can help out and whether it's donation helping us with fundraisers we're going to have a number of fundraisers throughout the country this year in communities where we just have a ton of support we had a great fundraiser a couple of months ago around the reese's senior bowl In Mobile, Alabama is a fantastic partner of ours where we host a a unique two-day experience there. And we get so much, we receive so much great support from the Mobile community that we decided to do a fundraiser there. And so we've got a couple of years of that under our belt. Our featured special guest two months ago at our fundraiser was Brett Favre. And so we're taking that blueprint and doing fundraisers across the country. And we'll do one in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're going to do one in New York City, Chicago, probably do one in Oklahoma City and probably one on the West Coast, maybe in San Francisco or LA. So if there are any volunteers or any, and there are that's a great thing, Cranbrook alums all over the country, all over the world, if you want to help out with any of those or any of our game day experiences, reach out to me,
0: info at specialspectators.org. Awesome. All right. So Cranbrook, let's rewind a little bit. So Special Spectators, Albion College, Cranbrook. When did you start? Yeah.
1: So I went there my junior and senior year. I started in the fall of 1983. I was a boarder. One of my great regrets in life is that I didn't go for all four years. I wish I really wish I had. Someone had spoken to me, Mickey Price name from the past. He passed away just a couple of years ago. Mickey Price uh, was someone who I knew going back to, I guess, kind of late grade school, middle school years. And I remember vividly going up a a chair. I was skiing with him and we were going up a chairlift together. And he said, have you ever thought about going to Cranbrook? And I was kind of like, well, what's Cranbrook? And I was, as I said to you earlier, I was too young, too stupid to really understand what the heck he was talking about. I was kind of like, well, I've got my own school here. Why would I go to way school? But anyway, I eventually became friends with some people who had been going to Cranbrook. And so it came up again. And my parents and I looked at it, and we decided this is something that I'd really love to do. And so I went my junior and senior year. It was an incredible experience. I'm still friends with tons of my classmates. You know, I think about all of the, the teachers and coaches who really impacted me, advisors. Mr. Hazard was my advisor. I think about, and some of these teachers left shortly after, but guys like uh, Chris Martin and Bob Rogers and Ben Snyder, obviously, who was a huge Cranbrook figure, and Bob Hoffman, Rich Lamb, who was my dorm master, Andrew Fisher, Bill Shulman, the list is is endless, and I'm going to forget some people, but Charlie Shaw, obviously, as well, was a teacher. This was before he even had any administrative role. So it was really an incredible experience. And I was not the, be- the greatest student at all. I wasn't. I'll just come out and admit that. And I don't have to admit it because a lot of people <laughs> know how dumb I am. But I remember the very first English paper I wrote at Cranbrook and my experience at public school, what I, I remember this vividly as well. My English class our fellow students graded our papers so you'd pass it to the person to your right this was in public school and and nothing against that I went to a very good public school too that was when you have your friends grading your papers you don't learn how to write and I remember my very first paper that I submitted to Chris Martin in my very first English class and he didn't even really great. it. He just wrote, see me at the top. And I was like, oh man, he's, like, I'm going to teach you how to write. And I had to submit to him maybe three or four different drafts, which I don't even think was a requirement of the other students. That's how, what a poor writer I was. And I had to submit three or four drafts to him with every writing assignment before I submitted the final draft. And he was, he would have dorm duty in the floor below me. Whenever he was on dorm duty, I had to come down and sit with him and go through every inch of my draft with him. And it was people who, people like that who, who you know, took a stand and, uh, had that impact. It was, uh, something I'll never forget.
0: I, I will say I was also a boarder through my four years there. And I also had a pretty similar experience in my teacher at the time. He was my freshman year teacher, Mr. Dunn, and he was also at the floor below, below my room. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was such, uh, sometimes I would avoid going down that staircase because there's, just, there's basically two staircases to go down. Right. So I right. avoid that yeah. staircase yeah. and that's where he is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yes, it was so helpful in just becoming a better writer and articulating thoughts and even going to. To the University of Michigan after graduating, the English classes are just so much easier. <laughs> what was that, cramper? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's for me writing.
1: So, it's kind of been a, a journey. my It's funny, my wife is a, an incredible writer. She actually went to journalism school at Northwestern. And she's sometimes when I'm still having trouble writing something, she'll help me out. And this is not an exaggeration. She'll just whip out two pages of incredible stuff in five minutes. I'm not exaggerating. It's incredible. It still baffles me. And that's what I still strive to be able to write like that, but it's work in progress, definitely. But I take a lot of the, a lot of the lessons that I took from Mr. Martin to this day. Yeah. But when was the last time you talked to Mr. Martin? It's been years. He left shortly after I graduated, but Mr. Shaw, I still keep in touch with. So my daughter, Lauren, graduated in 2020. And she was a boarder. We were living in New York City when we got her started there. And then I moved back to Michigan after 30 years of not living in the mitten. I moved back to Michigan in 2019, the summer before her senior year, and we kept her as a boarder just to not disrupt her Cranbrook experience, so. I would see Mr. Shaw all the time. Now that he's retired, I occasionally we we send emails. We talking about getting together and, and, uh, but anyway, Mr. Shaw sometimes gives me updates on Mr. Martin, gave me a book that he had written. So I have not spoken to Mr. Martin in a long time and his son was in my class too, but I haven't seen his son Richard in a long
0: time either. Maybe it's a, it might be a good time to catch up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely.
0: As a boarder or, or in general, your experience at Cranbrook, like what's, uh, what's the number one of the most memorable moments you've had? <laughs> oh, wow. I don't know if I can say some
1: of them publicly. <laughs> I, I just, I think for any experience, it's in its entirety, that's what impacted me as far as my Cranbrook experience. Not just what I just mentioned, the faculty and my coaches and But obviously friendships that I made, the guys who I'm still friends with, they're trying to shake me as much as they possibly can, but I track them down, unfortunately for them. But the friendships that I made living away from home, and there are so many, the experience that I just shared with you about learning to write from Chris Martin, all the time that I spent with so many of my teachers afterwards and the the investment that they made in me, just living away from home and just growing up that way was I remember I didn't talk to my parents for the first two weeks I was in the dorm and one night I might have been, you know, before study hall, study hours started and I got a knock on my door and someone who lived on my floor said, you've got a phone call. This was, again, 1980s, so we just had pay phones. We had like two or three pay phones on the floor. That was it. Well before cell phones. That's wild. Someone informed me I had a phone call so i i went to the payphone and i picked it up i said hello kind of like hello who is this and it was my mother's voice and the first thing she said to me were you ever going to call and and at that moment i was like oh yeah i've got parents i totally forgot i had parents that was kind of symbolic of and i'm very close with my family i don't want to but it was just it was being immersed in that experience that you know you just you really grow up you mature as much as I can mature, I suppose. I'm still a kid at heart. I
0: think that's one
1: reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, but just overall experience was
0: something I'll never forget. Did your daughter Lauren have the, a similar experience at Cranbrook?
1: She did. Yeah, she went for four years, which is something I always wish I did. And I was really proud of the fact that we were able to provide that for her, being able to go for four years. She worked her butt off. She worked harder than I am. She's a lot smarter than I ever was. It took some adjustment for her, but you know, the switch went off like in her sophomore year and she was having a tough time and she got knocked down a couple of times, but what I'm really proud of is that she just picked herself right up and knocked it out of the park from mid sophomore year all the way through i think she finished her you know junior and senior years with a three, 3839 those years and she just kicked butt so much smarter than me did so much better than i did and she really enjoyed her experience too i went to several parent's days coming in from new york city coming to detroit going to a parent's day with her each year and there were some things that were pretty similar. There were some things that were different, but the core was still there. And yeah, I think she had a great experience. I think it's always different. It's different for everyone. It's, and maybe sometimes you don't really, really appreciate it until later in your life. We'll see. She loved it and it was tough for her, but she did really well. And who knows, maybe as an adult, she'll look at it differently. Probably. I think that's the the other key thing. They're always, you carry those lessons through your entire life and and into adulthood. And maybe you don't realize it until you have kids yourself, some lessons that maybe, you know, you didn't really appreciate as much as you did when you were a student or as a recent grad or in your twenties or whatever. And so, um, you know, we'll we'll see.
0: Yeah. From my perspective during the, during my time actually at Cranbrook, it was just so tough (laughs) and yeah, sometimes I, I just did not like it. But ever since 2015, when I graduated, I just appreciate Cranbrook more and more. It's like, this is a really unique and special place. And I learned a lot from here. Yeah. But exactly what you were saying every so often, it's like, oh, I did learn that from Cranbrook somehow. <laughs> yeah. Today, you still volunteer, right? You do volunteer as an alum. I
1: do. I wish I could do more. So when I was in New York, I was... um I headed up the regional alumni network there in New York, and I didn't do nearly as much as I wish I could have. That's uh, another regret. And then that kind of led me to the Board of Governors, and I was on the Board of Governors for three years. But all the meetings I attended were remotely. I was in New York and was never able to go to a a meeting in person. And I wish I could have done more there. But, yeah,
0: I've helped out when I can. I don't know how much I've helped,
1: but, you know,
0: that's got a lot of time. Got a lot of time to keep on yeah. helping out. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing in my mind is through your experience at Cranberry and with special spectators, what's one of the things that you've learned about yourself recently?
1: Oh, uh, recently. Wow. I think most recently being that we've just been going through a pandemic for two years and how it applies to special spectators is being creative. Obviously, we see kids who um, have compromised immune systems, and exposing them to a pandemic is not the greatest idea in the world, right? So, what we did in 2020 is we did everything virtually, very similar to what we're doing now, except we did it on you know Zoom calls. So we would have four, five, six families on a Zoom call with a head coach with a legendary player from that school. Like when we were doing an event with Arkansas, we did it with a, one of the greatest Arkansas Razorback players ever, fantastic running back, Darren McFadden, head coaches like Mac Brown at North Carolina. And fortunately, we had incredible partners, corporate partners who helped us create a virtual experience that was the next best thing to being there in person. And to give a couple of quick examples, so, Obviously, I said a big part of our game day experience is the hospitality area. Obviously, we can't serve a virtual tailgate. But what we had with our partners at General Mills was they sent all of our families a at-home tailgate care package, essentially, with a lot of their product and a lot of gifts in there. And we obviously threw in a bunch of gifts. And then we obviously can't get the kids in the locker room. So how can we bring the locker room to them and our partner at Riddell? their VP of marketing, Erin Griffin, sits on our board. She's incredible. She's incredibly generous and thoughtful and just love her to death. She donated mini helmets for every school so that these kids got a little mini helmet. And that was our way of trying to recreate the locker room experience as best we could. And then obviously doing Zoom calls with players and coaches that took care of that element of our game day experience. Okay, well, how do we get the kids in front of the fans? Obviously, we can't, there weren't any fans in the stands in 2020. So it's not like we could introduce them to 100,000 fans in a stadium. So let's bring the fans to the kids. And what we did was, and admittedly, this did not work as well as we had planned, but we had a short code and a keyword that was unique for that school. So um, at Arkansas, for instance, fans could text hogs to a short code and send a message of encouragement and inspiration to the kids. And that was kind of a way for the fans to take that showing their support by giving a a standing ovation at the stadium. That was our way of doing. So just having that challenge and kind of finding creative ways to come up with something that was the next best thing without actually being there. I think that's, When I think about my experience at Cranbrook, obviously that was a big part of it, the creativity of it and just trying to be unstoppable or being unstoppable and moments of great challenge. And so I think to kind of apply that to what we've been facing for the last two years. That's what we've been doing. And then in 2021, we were slowly able to go back in person in stadiums, but also we did do a little bit of virtual. We did stuff, maybe not in person at games, but in person at practice. So it was really a mix and just trying to come up with the best thing that we possibly could.
0: Yeah, just as a lesson of yeah perseverance and being resistant to change. Yeah. Blake, we're coming to a close now. All right. I want to thank you a lot for your time here. A wonderful conversation I enjoyed it and very last question you know who else would you want to hear on this podcast
1: oh, oh. wow who else wow there's so many um, if you had to pick one if i had to pick yeah. one i have to pick one my gosh well, i think about my fellow dorm buddy who is a year older than me who's a fascinating guy and um you know probably gives a unique perspective as well because he's an international student so he came from the united arab emirates and that's my buddy akhmat sharaf he'd be a fascinating guy to speak to
0: all right giving kind of a world perspective well i'll reach out to him this has been aim high cramory kingswood's alumni podcast If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate if you could take a few seconds to subscribe wherever you listen and leave us a five-star review. This helps a lot in getting the word out and making the podcast easier to find. For any feedback or guest requests, please send an email to robert at alumni.fm. Thank you so much for listening and catch you soon.